0: You might not have heard of them, but there's a special group of organelles in your cells called peroxisomes. These peroxisomes are important in the normal functioning of your cells, such as helping to break down very long chain fatty acids. Today, we discuss how the division of these organelles are regulated by a special protein. And we also discuss with our guest the perils of publishing in academia. Today's guest is a postdoctoral research associate at the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christian Koval-Cook. Thank you for having me, pleasure. Did you start telling us about where your interest in cell biology came from?
1: After a few years of being asked the question, I think it's the fact that it's quite nicely modular in that you have, if you go down to a protein, what I say, an enzyme site within a protein, and then you can scale that up to a metabolic reaction, which happens within a compartment of an organelle. The organelle makes up the cell, et cetera. And I think the ability to be able to zoom in and out, you know, all the way down to a phosphorylation site in a protein and back up to see how that impacts a cell and ultimately a tissue is uh, always something I found very, very appealing. Um, Yeah, it's a very satisfying way of looking at the world, I think, that's kind of modular.
0: Module aspect to it. So currently, you are a postdoc, and uh, as listeners know, that comes after uh, doing a PhD. So, what are the main differences you found? As you're probably aware about how important publishing is as part of being in academia, there's obviously that the the fear of being scooped. So, could you uh, describe a bit about what it means to be scooped and about your close calls with it in your past?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. being scooped is like this little thing that just sporadically pops up to your back of your mind that you're worried that somebody else is working on the same thing as you and they have similar results and they are going to publish before you. And I'd say, I mean, it's better nowadays, but I think if you were to go back maybe five years ago, uh, maybe more than maybe 10 years ago, if, if somebody did publish it, it did kind of screw you over a bit. And you know, the novelty's gone. I think more and more journals are sympathetic towards it, and they understand. I mean, c- c- cell biology as a as a field is just ram packed full of people, work talented people working on very you know overlapping or sometimes exactly the same ideas. And so you know, it's it's always going to be case. And you know, there are probably circumstances where you know papers that I've been on we've end up scooping someone else and not realizing. You know, it's just something that happens. Uh, what we had with one of our papers uh, during my PhD was, I remember I was um, walking to, um, so I was actually going to go to Liverpool for the day because a friend of mine had just finished her PhD and we're going to go to a Viva celebration. And I got this little email, or uh, you can get like email alerts of um, journal content, uh, content pages and stuff that tell you what's been published recently. And I see a title that is basically exactly what I'm working on and so I read the paper whilst I'm on the train to Liverpool and I'd say about 50% of it substantially overlaps with what I've been doing two months later another lab publishes a paper again with about quite a substantial portion of it that is uh, the same and we frantically wrote up this paper hoping that you know maybe we could if we publish it quicker it wouldn't matter that we'd just been scooped twice um what actually ended up happening was it worked out okay because we even though we had maybe, you know, one large conclusion that was similar to these other two papers, we ended up repeating some of the work that they'd done with completely opposite conclusions. And also, I think explored another area which they hadn't. And so I think it was quite a good lesson in that one being scooped does feel terrible and you should be mindful of it but ultimately you know your one's job as a as an academic is to try and be pursuing you know the truth as much as the as much as the papers do affect my career i still have to keep in my mind that um you know i'm i'm still trying to publish data not for my benefit for for the Mm. benefit of knowledge on the whole and so once you come in from that point of view, you do something like, okay, well, they've, they've published, maybe we can try and take this somewhere else. We weren't nearly scooped, we were scooped twice, but uh, it all turned out okay.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Even though the papers are similar, although subjectively it might be a bit heart- uh, disheartening providing how, you know, the discovery you've made, but in an objective sense, you know, looking at the bigger picture would, we- would publishing similar papers be kind of a good thing in terms of like the broad scale because it's still all supporting the same idea. So it's re- reproducible evidence of pretty much the exact same thing.
1: Exactly. I mean, there's no secret that people are worried a lot about reproducibility of data in biology. Mm-hmm. And if you have three papers all saying, you know, in this case, Miro 1 and Miro 2 are on peroxisomes, it's like, well, they're probably on peroxisomes, then, aren't they? Absolutely, um, So yeah, it is useful. I mean, also, uh, again, it's it's not a bad thing if you can, if you can, it kind of broadens the field a bit. You know, if you just have this one island of a paper that just says one thing, instead of having these perhaps like Venn diagrams of papers where perhaps they do share one thing that's exactly the same, but then they go off in different areas. That can only be a good thing for the science. So it depends which way you look at it. I mean, if you come from the personal angle, no one wants to be scooped. But if you think from a science angle, maybe being scooped is actually a good thing for science.
0: Absolutely. So moving towards the paper where you discuss about about peroxisomes, as as you've just mentioned, these are organelles within the cell that some people might not have heard of before. So could you describe what peroxisomes are?
1: Yeah, so I think if you go and find that an average cell biologist and ask them what a are. They never know. And I think it's because it's, I mean, at least for me, it was the only organelle that I didn't really learn about. Um, and so basically there are these small, uh, they have small organelles. They have one membrane. They, they're involved in many different metabolic proce- uh, processes, such as reactive oxygen species, uh, both production and production. Uh, uh, mopping up the ROS as well they produce some specialist lipids so for example the major lipid constituent of myelin that surrounds your neurons is made in peroxomes. Um, they do some uh, uh, oxidation of fatty acids they're pretty much ubiquitous to eukaryotic life I think there are a few organisms that don't have them um but yeah, I mean, if you if you ask most people what they are, a lot of people get them confused with the lysosome and they say, oh, they aren't they involved in degrading stuff or something, which to, to some extent they are involved in degrading stuff. I think a substantial portion of the ethanol, if you drink alcohol, uh, is mopped up by, by paroxysomes. So yeah, they're, they're these small vesicular organelles, basically, that do a lot of metabolism.
0: Absolutely. And they're able to, if I've read this, if I've understood this
1: correctly, they're able to go under uh, the process of fission and fusion. Um, So they can undergo fission, although I don't, I think there's pretty good evidence that they can't undergo fusion. So unlike the case of, say, mitochondria where they can. So all all fission is, is, well, basically, if you think about it, you have to somehow get more peroxisomes. If you if you divide a cell and the cell grows, you need to get more peroxisomes. And one way of doing this is just you take the peroxisomes you already have and you chop them up into smaller pieces and then let them let them grow. And that process is is fission. Mm-hmm. It normally happens by you have say a mature peroxisome sends out a little protrusion and that protrusion is then just like cut up into various different little uh, immature peroxisomes. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh,
0: moving on to uh, sort of more into the paper, you discuss about uh, Rho-GTPases. Could you describe them a little bit and uh, why they're important in cells?
1: Yeah, so GTPases are these these enzymes that, well, there's a, there's a massive family of them, so some some people may have heard of them, like either the Rho-GTPases, RAC, the RABs, and they have this ability to hydrolyze GTP. So they little similar to ATP, basically. Um, and in doing so, they can have this on and off state. Now, the GTPases that we were interested in were these myro GTPases. And unlike a lot of the ones that other people have worked on, so the RABs and the RACs and the ROSE, is these are found in uh, at the outer mitochondrial membrane. People originally thought they were similar to rho GTPases based on sequence homology, hence the name Miro, so mitochondrial rho. I don't. I think actually, if you look at the sequence a bit like deeper, they're not really similar to those. Um, but yeah, they they have this they have this enzyme activity to be on and off by having either GTP bound or GDP bound state. Um, in the case of myro, these are. In every organism that has mitochondria, they have uh, these myro gtpases In humans, there's two. Uh, in mice, there's two. I think in plants, there's three. And they have this overarching role in uh, mitochondrial homeostasis. So they help mitochondria move. Uh, they help mitochondria form contact sites with the endoplasmic reticulum. They have, they have several several other roles. Um, but yeah they're, they're, they're very important if you get rid of both of them say in mice the mice don't develop at all wow uh, so they're, they're, they're very important to life they're also in to some extent kind of redundant to one another. in in the case of uh, the two paralogs in in humans and, and mice um, but yeah very important to mitochondrial homeostasis basically
0: very interesting and um one thing that uh, peroxidomes can do much like or other organelles is being able to move around the cell. Um, Could you talk a little bit about how uh, organelles and proteins are able to move around um, and why is their ability to move
1: around important? So in the case of proteins, that's, that's mainly done by some kind of targeting sequence. So, you know, let's say you make the protein in the cytoplasm on a ribosome and it basically needs to know where to go. So if you want to send it to the peroxisome inside the peroxisome, the easiest way to do it is to have serine, lysine, leucine at the C terminus. If you have those three amino acids at the C terminus, they will go to the peroxisome and there is various targeting. And that's kind of well studied for a lot of the organelles and ongoing work still happening. To me, what's more interesting is how the organelles themselves move. Um, so I think the, the traditional way of looking at a cell from a textbook is you have this kind of round static blob that has these individual organelles in them. That's not, that's not in reality what they look like at all. The most exaggerated example of this would be a neuron where you, know, you can have a neuron that goes from your hip to your toe, one continuous cell, about a meter long, if you're as tall as me. And a lot of the organelles are made in the, by the nucleus up in your hip. So you need to distribute them down the rest of the rest of the neuron. Wow. The way of doing this long long range, to so say in that case is particularly long range. If you can need to get down to your toe, is they use microtubules. So these long polymer uh, polymer molecules, and they have these motor proteins that essentially walk along these these microtubules. Uh, this is very dynamic. So in the, mit- the mitochondria, is probably one of the better cases of it being studied. They, you know, they, they walk along to me in that case, often the better question is not how do they move, but how do they know when to stop? So the, the best characterizing mitochondria is a uh, calcium influx into the cell combined onto myro, and myro says, okay, we stop here now. And you just hop off of the, off of the microtubules. I mean, you stop, do your job there. You can buffer calcium, provide ATP for ion channels, et cetera, et cetera and then start moving on until you find out where to go. Now, in the case of peroxisomes, this is really not very well known. Um, pe- you know, people have vaguely studied it in the early 2000s when fluorescence microscopy was becoming a thing and they could see that these things are moving, but the the machinery, the, the proteins that that are required to move them is pretty, pretty much not, not known at all. Um, yeah yeah imagine you if you have a factory that's making something the factory needs to be near uh, where it needs to be so if you need energy you move your mitochondria over there that,
0: that's Brilliant. the idea. That's a uh, Thank you very much for the explanation. So we'll go, uh, we'll move towards into the results section. Um, and the f- uh, first result um, of the paper we're discussing today was the targeting of to myotubercosomes is regulated by its first GTP domain and binding to PEX19 to Miro's transmembrane domain. Um, so one of the things that uh, is quite quite interesting with cell biology is you know, for, from my perspective, when I when you kind of look up at a cell, it just kind of looks all the same in terms of it doesn't, it's, it's not as colourful as it looks in a textbook. So what sort of technique do you use to I, to identify the location of organelles such as peroxisomes, And uh, what are the challenges with trying to find them in cells?
1: Yeah, so it very much depends on your question that you're trying to ask. But if you're trying to ask Um, for example, where does a specific protein go or how much are organelles moving? The the go-to is always fluorescent microscopy. And so what it involves is putting some kind of fluorescent, so fluorophore uh, fluorescent protein uh, to the place you want it in the cell, and then you put it on a microscope and have a look. Now, this is particularly powerful Uh, for example you want to prove that myro goes to peroxisomes in this case you can stain the peroxisomes and you can stain myro and if you see them overlap then you say it looks like they're in the same place there are many uh, difficulties with doing it for example being sure that you have stained the right thing that's always a problem um If you are, uh, you know, you could be staying the thing you want, but also something else. You could have mislocalized protein if you're expressing it exogenously. Um, Also, if you're doing live cells, they don't really want to be pounded with loads of laser light because they will just die. So you have to make sure that you have low laser light, which then means you need a bright fluorophore. And finally, one thing that's quite relevant to peroxisomes is there is a resolution limit to light microscopy, and that is dictated by the wavelength of light. And so you pretty much can't say if you have two dots and you wanna know, are they two dots or one dot overlapping? As soon as you go to about half the wavelength of light apart, they all just appear as one dot. And so if the wavelength of light uh, you're using is 500, you have 250 nanometers, 500 nanometers. You can then only discern two dots if they're 250 nanometers or more apart. And 250 nanometers is actually quite far in a cell. Um, and so peroxisomes are often actually quite small and they're near the resolution limit of the, of the microscope. Now you could go to higher wavelengths, but higher wavelength means more energy. And if you put more energy on, you just cook your cell. Um, another technique people might have heard of your cell biologically is electron microscopy. And so there, the reason you can get ultra structures and you can see tiny distances is because the wavelength of an of electron is so much uh, smaller. Um, the downside to that is it's difficult to stain things specifically. The cell has to be dead because you're putting it in a vacuum and firing electrons at it. Um, but yeah, the, the fluorescent microscope is the is a workhorse of cell biology. It, I once heard someone say if, if uh, you know, if you have a really good hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And I think if you give me a question, I'll always ask first can I put it on a microscope? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to think of it.
0: And absolutely. And uh, going towards the the results um, that you you found, you were able to show the importance of uh, PEX 19, a systolic chaperone protein. Um, how were you able to use uh, the techniques, um, such as you've described, to be able to demonstrate this function?
1: So in this case, the, the the way we did it wasn't actually by microscopy, but we did it by co-immunoprecipitation. And pretty, pretty simply, all you do is you pull the thing of interest that you want. So in this case, pex 19 you mash up your cells, you pull it down with an antibody uh and then you see if myro is also has also come along for the ride um and so that's how we did this um yeah and then ultimately what you can do is you can just put that those mashed up proteins basically onto a western blot and see if the protein's present or not present and so this is what we did with with pex 19 and myro and then Because of the way PEX-19 is thought to work, we thought it must be binding the transmembrane domain. And so you can just get rid of the transmembrane domain from MIRO, and then you can see that they do interact. They they no longer interact without the transmembrane domain. Right, very very interesting.
0: Um, And the next result that you got was uh, about uh, that MIRO is not required for uh, basal long-range peroxomal distribution. were you, were you surprised um, that the loss did not affect the ability to, of the peroxisomes to move long distance in the cells, um, as, um, especially how sort of the short-term movements were affected?
1: Yeah, and even more so, that, like, the canonical role of Miro is to move mitochondria long range. And so if you see this protein at peroxisomes, you assume it must be moving those long range. And we actually had a real big problem with this because the other two papers that scooped us had said that it probably was involved. And we did everything we could to see whether it was. We got rid of both Miro 1 and Myro 2 measured. No, there's still long range movement. We got rid of it in the short term. So you can just acutely get rid of uh, Miro. We did this. It's still there. Uh, we tried everything, but all, yeah, they still move really long, long distances. We also employed, employed this, uh, this super resolution microscopy technique that can basically get over the resolution limits of light microscopy. They approximate still associated with microtubules. So it was a real surprise. And it probably took me about a year to even convince myself that it was true. And yeah, we, we tried it, we threw everything in to see whether or not it was. But you know, if it keeps giving you the same result, it probably isn't. I mean, even more so, I mean, you'd expect if there were differences in long range movement that the distribution in the cell would be different. And When we looked at the distribution of the cell, they, they still weren't different, so yeah, it took a while, but I'm quite confident they're, they're not affected, at least in the cells that we looked in. Absolutely.
0: And uh, what uh, and if Myro isn't isn't involved in sort of the long distances, what can you, do you, what did you think or what do you think? Is the way they are able to move, is it more sort of using the cytoskeleton to move around the cell?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the idea was that Myra would be coupling them to the cytoskeleton. And so, and it's, it's definitely the case, like if you, you can pharmacologically get rid of microtubules, for example, I and mean, if you do that, peroxisomes no longer move long range. So we're pretty confident it happens on microtubules. Though the real question is, what is sticking them to the microtubules? It doesn't appear to be myro. I think there are some candidates, but I think, I mean, after we published this paper, we wrote a review on proximal trafficking uh, transport, and you know, the, the data is just really not there, and not many people are looking into it. I think the main issue is that we're not ever really looking in cells where mo- you need you need the proxomes to move long, long distances, and so I think people are starting to look at movement into cilia of certain cells because there you would need to move into a little into a little cilia um yeah yeah i yeah I'm, i still don't know what the machinery would be i think that's still an open question
0: brilliant so uh thanks for that we will move on to the uh, next uh, and the last um item in the results which was uh, that myro negatively regulates the recruitment of drp1 to peroxisomes to modulate fission um, can you describe the importance of uh, DRP1 in relation to fission, and is it involved with uh, the regulation of fission in other organelles, such as mitochondria?
1: Yeah, so DRP1 basically is the way that you can undergo fission in mitochondria, peroxisomes, and I think to some extent it can happen in the, in the endoplasmic reticulum um basically the way it works is it will uh oligomerize into little rings around the organelle it's also a GTPase, and then using that gtp as a as an energy source will contract, constrict and just pinch the organelle into two now because you don't want that happening all the time the way it's regulated is by the recruitment of it from the cytoplasm to the membrane of interest so you have a mitochondria floating around you say actually we want this to now be not one mitochondria but two the, the receptors for drp1 so the ones that are known are mff is one uh, there's a few others um, pull drp1 from the cytoplasm to the membrane it oligomerizes and pinch into two uh, this process is super important uh, I think again, if you delete DRP1, you don't have life. Uh, it basically, don't have mammalian life for sure. I think I think in a yeast cell, you will probably do all right if you get rid of DRP1. Um, and interesting, I've always found it quite interesting that this process seems to be shared between the mitochondria and peroxisomes. The receptors are the same. DRP1 is shared, um, meaning you can probably modulate both of these at the same time. Um, now, whilst it's kind of known that you, can, you need to recruit it to membranes, we know the things that recruit it to the membranes. Again, the question of when, it, when, this, when does this happen and how do you say, actually, yeah, let's go for it, it's slightly less well, well understood. Um, and so here, what we, what we showed was that it seems that at least uh, in, in the cells we looked at that MIRO negatively regulates the ability of DRP1 to be recruited. Meaning if you get rid of Myro, you'll have more DRP1 recruited, which means you have more fission and you'd have smaller mitochondria, smaller proxomes.
0: Perfect. That's that, that's that's really interesting. Um, and to to and to cap off the our uh, talk about the paper today, um thank you very much for taking us through the results. What came next after you published this? Where did the findings that you and uh that that you uh that your paper
1: um discovered go on to to look up so So. in terms of me we actually this was only published when i'd already been in my postdoc lab for a while so this was a case of (laughs) this was a case of moving on and so i went through times where i would do a four weeks work in oxford and then on the weekends i'd go down to london work in the lab for saturday and sunday get people to, to set up some stuff for me and then go back um and so in terms of uh experiments there hasn't been much done by me or the lab um in terms of where i think it should go and you know i think if people don't work this out before i start my own lab i think i eventually will have a little dabble with this is As we were saying earlier, it's I st- still not known how you stick peroxisomes to the microtubules in the first place. Um, I think the main reason for the, some difficulties with this is we're often using cells which are easy to use in the lab, but aren't actually dependent on peroxisomes moving in the first place. So in just your bog standard you know, cell that you have in a dish in the lab, a lot of the time they're just cancer cells. They don't care. You, you know they're they're sat in this delicious glucose media with all the growth factors they could ever want and the proxomes can sit in the middle of the cell and they really don't need to be moved and so i think we need to move this into areas so for example because proxosomes make the main lipid constituent of uh, myelin looking in oligodendrocytes the, the cells that make myelin surely they need to move more there and there when you start doing genetic perturbations you can Probably more easily see um, whether or not it's happening. I, I think I think what it really needs is someone to develop an assay where, if peroxisome uh, transport is perturbed, you would see a very big difference in distribution. Because then you can look at just fixed cells. You don't have to take movies. You don't have to do some complicated analysis. You can just very easily see they have not filled the cell. They are just all around the nucleus um and i think that's what the this field is really crying out for it's just someone to develop a way to be like okay clearly we've found something that's important because they're they they have not made it to the tip of the cell because in the cells we use at least i mean yeah they just fill the cell homogeneously and i don't think they care either way
0: that's really interesting and that that um that that, that sort of Joe's question about how do you select what type of cells you're going to use um, for your assays, um, and is there is there a wide range of cells uh, that you can choose, or do or do uh, researchers such as yourself sort of go between a select
1: number of sp- types of different cells? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one because you're always fighting between two uh, things which aren't always mutually compatible, which is what is easy and what is interesting. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so, uh, you know, it's the case that nowadays I'm using yeast. Yeast, you can grow up, you know, hundreds of millions of them really quickly and you can genetically modify them really quickly. Um, But, you know, they're not, they're not really going to care too much about peroxiderms moving Uh because they're so small for example. Uh, In fact, you can get rid of proxenomes from yeast pretty easy and they they don't care that much unless you put them into certain uh, types of media. Um, And so often I would say people will start in the easy until it doesn't give them the results they want and then they will move to the hard. Um, And so as I was saying, in the case of like, you know, it's all good and dandy me saying, yeah, we should do it in oligodendrocytes, but that is not easy if you want them to be in you know in their nice ramified morphology you'd have to look inside a mouse now you're dealing with a whole organism if you want to genetically modify that you can't just be knocking out genes on a weekly basis like you can in yeast for example mm-hmm. or even the mammalian cells nowadays you can knock out in cell culture you can knock out uh, genes pretty quickly um so yeah it's yeah it's a const- it's a constant challenge trying to work it out I mean, even things like, let's say, for example, you want to look at uh, peroxisomal transport. Often the way to do it is you need to get a fluorescent probe into the peroxisome, so then you can see it on a microscope. Now, that means you often have to get DNA into the cell that carries the gene for that fluorescent probe, and a lot of cells are really difficult to get DNA into. So, you know, you might end up spending... The first year of your PhD just working out how to get DNA into the, your cell of interest so you need is all yeah there's always a fight between what's easy and what's what's uh, interesting sometimes they overlap very nicely and you can do something that's easy and interesting simultaneously <laughs> but uh you know there are there are a lot of examples where that's not true absolutely yeah and I, I from
0: from the and especially I, I, I take it when you're dealing with when you're trying to look at cells that are normally in a multicellular environment, it must be really hard to kind of replicate how to keep them happy and keep them alive, and keeping them stable. And do you do you find that for certain cell types it's very easy to keep them happy and stable? Where and uh. Yeah, there, uh, as you find for some type of cells, it's quite hard to find media for them to grow in. And if so, is that like the,
1: the biggest challenge when you're trying to look at the singular cells? I mean, sometimes, yeah. I think the bigger issue is not trying to keep them alive, but trying to keep them uh, in their physiological state still. Mm-hmm. So a friend of mine worked on um, microglia, which are the like the immune cells of the brain basically. And people have shown very convincingly that if you look at the, the the gene expression of cells that come straight from the brain or ones that you can grow in a dish, they don't even look like the same cells, cell types. And so it, you know, it, it's the case that you can, you know, get microglia out of a brain and put them in a dish and they all grow and you can have, you know, this nice supply of microglia, microglia, but you know, your experiment from the word go is flawed because they they do not look the same typically we do a lot of our cell culture stuff in what's basically in 2d so they're stuck to a dish there's nothing that what's around them is just liquid whereas if you imagine your your liver is a 3d object it is not a 2d object so it'll often be in touch all around it will be in its own little area where it has its mates that aren't necessarily the same cell type as it um you know there'll be changes in media conditions which probably impact the the metabolism of the cell whereas when we have cells in a dish we just put the same media on when they get when the cells are too too many in a dish we just take some of them off and let them keep growing now i i think i think for many many questions Ultimately, a lot of the fundamental questions in cell biology, it doesn't matter too much. For example, if you're looking at DNA damage, if if the cells gonna repair its DNA, if it's damaged, if it's in 2D, 3D, upside down, don't matter. It it still needs to, and so then you can get to the molecular machinery a little bit better. It's when you start teetering on, okay, how is this actually important in a tissue uh, uh, context? I mean, not even always tissue context; just sometimes in other contexts, um, then then it really starts to matter.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, thank you very much for talking us uh, through the paper and talking about some of the ideas um, in uh, cell biology with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.